0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
4: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Kelly. It all started with a thought experiment. You're walking past a shallow pond and you see that a child is drowning.
1: You realize that unless you wade into this pond and pull a child out, the child is likely to drown.
4: This is the philosopher Peter Singer. And his thought experiment is from an article published in 1972 called Famine, Affluence and Morality. The article confronts us all with a simple question. Do you save the drowning kid?
1: there's no danger to you because you know the pond is just just a shallow one but you are wearing a a nice pair of shoes and they're probably gonna get ruined if you wade into that shallow pond so of course when I ask people this you know they always say well of course forget about the shoes you you just got to save the child that's that's clear and then I stop and say okay well I you know I agree with you about that but for the price of a pair of shoes If you were to give that to Oxfam or UNICEF or one of those organizations, they could probably save the life of a child, maybe more than one child, in a poor country where children are dying because they can't get basic medical care to treat very basic diseases like diarrhea or... or
4: In my case, Singer's math lines up almost perfectly. According to UNICEF, for about 100 US dollars, they can buy enough food to save a child. And right now, I'm actually wearing a pair of leather slippers that cost me about the same, $100. They were a totally unnecessary luxury. So the thinking goes, maybe I shouldn't have bought the slippers. Maybe a kid is hungry because I decided to buy these slippers rather than give my $100 to UNICEF. Singer's article became one of the most famous articles in contemporary ethics— and it started a movement. A movement called Effective Altruism. Many people call it EA for short. EA wants to help as many people as possible and prevent as much suffering as possible. They measure their effectiveness in simple utilitarian logic. You can quantify which charities give you the best bang for your buck. So they've basically come up with a math for morality. They've made it quantifiable and technical. Perhaps because of that, they've become very influential in the Silicon Valley world. And one of their chief evangelists is Sam Bankman-Fried. Yes, that guy, SBF, the guy who ran the crypto exchange FTX. About eight months ago, SBF actually interviewed Peter Singer. His microphone is a bit muffled, but it is still very interesting. SBF is gushing to one of his philosophical idols.
2: Peter, It's really great to talk, and uh, I, it's always it's always lovely. Um, you know, you've been one of the biggest influences in my life. Uh, you know, philosophically and and practically in terms of what I've ended up deciding to do, and 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 I know I'm not alone in that camp.
1: Thanks, Sam. It's always good to know that I've had an impact on people, and uh...
4: In the conversation, he asks Singer what the role of crypto is in EA. Singer does consider that there are some drawbacks to crypto, like environmental impacts or criminal activity, but he says there are some positives. Um,
1: As I said, the the big positive is if if there are people who have crypto and that they're interested in donating to effective charities, then that's a, a huge plus that comes out of this.
4: This kind of thinking is called Earn to Give, That's become a huge mantra in the EA community. It's simple. You just have to run the utilitarian logic forward a bit. So we've already established I shouldn't have bought my luxurious slippers. There was a better case for giving my money to UNICEF. But let's think more ambitiously than my initial $100. Maybe I should be focusing my energies on earning more money so I can save more people. Because obviously, if I had $200 to give, well, that would save more kids. So what does this mean about how I live my life? Well, I can make do with my existing meager income and give a little bit up to charity, or I could change my priorities and try to become fabulously wealthy. Then I could give a lot more away. That's exactly what SBF said he was trying
2: to do. You know, Mostly what, what I think about is, what role should I be playing here? And uh, you know, I got into finance in the first place. Um, to try and maximize the amount that I can donate to, uh, to some of the most effective causes.
4: SBF has been donating to the EA movement. Just last year, he donated $130 million to a fund. And outside of SBF, they've actually raised billions. As of recently, $46.1 billion. When was the last philosophical movement that you've heard of that has raised that kind of money? And this money is really pushing EA to new intellectual frontiers.
2: You know, since the effective altruism movement has broadened out to include a lot of different ways of trying to, to help the world, because obviously not everything is direct and there are a lot of things that have broader but uh, you know thinner impacts or harder to evaluate impacts. And that doesn't mean they don't matter. It doesn't mean they do matter either. It's, it's you need to analyze it one way or another. And I think it's identified a lot of particularly promising areas in addition to kind of developing world health, um, you know, animal welfare, especially on factory farms and looking at things that could have really big impacts on the long run future of the world, because anything that you do that affects the whole future, it might be affecting tens of trillions of future people.
4: Yes, you heard that right. Tens of trillions of future people. This is long-termism, a major branch of the EA movement. It's where a lot of people are going today and where a lot of the main intellectuals are focusing their energies. These are people mostly based at Oxford, and the main long-termists are guys like Nick Bostrom, Will McCaskill, and Toby Ord. These long-termists focus on what they call existential risk. That doesn't necessarily mean climate change, perhaps not climate change at all. They mean risks that could completely wipe out the human race. And they also mean risks that are far off and distant. So let's go back to that kid in the shallow pond. I could save them by wrecking my shoes, I could save another kid by donating $100, and I could save two kids if I donated $200. But what about future kids thousands of years from now? In long-termism, they're no less worthy than the kids of today. So if my actions today could play some small part in preventing human extinction, then actually I'd be saving billions or trillions of kids. And it's not just preventing extinction. It's about encouraging human flourishing, flourishing of a sort. What if we can colonize space? What if we could reach a kind of transhumanist transcendence? You just have to run the utilitarian math forward. If more people can live more fulfilling lives, that is a higher expected utility. And those future people in possible worlds, they're no less worthy than the people of today. In fact, if we don't make their future possibility a reality, that is actually wasting their potential. This is what long-termists call astronomical waste. This leads to some strange calculations and some rather strange philosophical conclusions. Like saying that technological development is the single most important cause that all utilitarians should commit themselves to. Or saying that rich people are more important than poor people, because rich people have a better chance of improving the long-term potential of humanity. These are all ideas that major long-termists have argued, and ideas that SPF is directly funding. was funded.
2: Meanwhile, prices of digital currencies fell sharply over the weekend after the leading cryptocurrency exchange, FDX, filed for bankruptcy on Friday. Overnight it wiped out nearly all the wealth of 30-year-old CEO Sam Bankman-Fried.
4: FDX has filed for bankruptcy. They had this investment arm that was making risky bets with people's deposits. When people found out, there was a three-day bank run. FTX has closed its doors, and depositors are out $8 billion. And long-termism is out one of its major donors and chief evangelists. So the movement is having a serious reckoning. And today on Darts and Letters, we dig deeper into long-termism and their complicated moral math. We do so by speaking to one of their proponents. Well, former proponents. That's after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. So if you're finding us for the first time, why don't you consider subscribing to our main feed? Darts and Letters covers the politics of academia, science, expertise, intellectual culture, and more. If you like this episode, you will surely like other episodes that we've produced. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca, and you can subscribe there so you never miss an episode. Emil P. Torres studies existential risk at Leibniz Universität Hanover. They initially found long termism quite appealing. In fact, they were part of the movement but Emile and long-termism had a bit of a falling out. Emile is now one of the movement's sharpest critics. Today, they are our guide through the complicated moral math of long-termism and the bundle of techno-utopian ideas that come with it.
3: Long-termism is a word that was coined in 2017, but the idea goes back really to the early aughts, perhaps even a little bit before that, in the work of Nick Bostrom. The central aim of long-termism is really to to reduce existential risk, where existential risk is any event that would prevent us from creating some kind of utopian world among the stars with astronomical numbers of people. So I initially got introduced to the notion of of existential risk through the idea of transhumanism. And existential risk was initially defined specifically in transhumanist terms as just any event that would prevent us from realizing the transhumanist project of radically enhancing ourselves, and thereby creating this, you know, techno-utopian world in the future. And, yes, so at first I found transhumanism to be quite alarming. In order to realize the transhumanist project, it's necessary to develop various technologies, uh, emerging technologies like nanotechnology, synthetic biology, you know, genetic engineering, and advanced artificial intelligence. And it turns out that these technologies seem to carry greater risks with them than any technologies we've ever created before. Transhumanism says we need to develop these. If we don't, the transhumanist project will never succeed. But on the other hand, developing them runs the risk that these technologies will destroy the transhumanist project itself by perhaps destroying humanity. And so that was my initial introduction to this general area, and yeah, at first I was very much a critic of it. but. You know, sort of realized that or came to the conclusion, which I think is somewhat wrong now, that a lot of these technologies cannot be stopped. They're they're developed, you know, the enterprise of technologization is not something that has any breaks. So rather than try to fight the development of these technologies, one should sort of join the team and see if you can sort of shape the way they're developed to make the future as safe as possible. Mm. Because
4: one of the Bostrom arguments, right, is that if we don't do it, sort of outlaws will, and therefore better to bring it into the fold than to forbid it because there's no way to properly forbid it,
3: right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So the, part of the argument is that actually, if you try to regulate it, if you try to impose you know, broad moratoriums on entire fields of emerging science, what you're really going to do is just drive that science underground.
4: As you start to consider these transhumanist uh, technologies, does that lead you into the arms of long-termism, essentially?
3: Yeah, so the idea of existential risk, you could see it as the thing that connects the early transhumanism, uh, the late 1990s, early 2000s, with long-termism later on, because the idea is central to both transhumanism and long-termism. You know, initially, Bostrom thought, okay, an existential risk is any event that prevents us from creating this techno-utopian world of post-humanity. And then, shortly after that, he realized, actually, there could be not just this techno-utopian world, but an enormous number of people in the future. And so, all of that would be enabled by technology as well. And it would be very bad if we failed to create these people, because on the particular ethical view that they accepted, could exist, implies should exist. So if there are possible people in the far future who could exist, they should exist, and hence, failing to create them would be some kind of moral tragedy. This is how the idea of existential risk took shape, and then the you know, once you have the effect of altruists, discovering this idea and realizing, like, oh, there could be a huge number of people in the future, and the best way to do the most good is to focus on these far future people, this idea of existential risk becomes very, very important to them. So this is through trans- transhumanism to existential risk. For me, to leads directly to the long termist ideology. Mm. So, so you know, long termism is this particular ideology. It's it's relatively new, although it has roots, you know, going back several decades. But this was a worldview that Bankman Fried avowed to accept, to be an enthusiastic uh, advocate of. In fact, he mentions in a New Yorker. Article that was published shortly after McCaskill, uh, his book came out. He talks about how he's really kind of no interest in global poverty. He's really focused on the very far future. So it's unsurprising to critics like myself that Sam Bankman-Frieds that perhaps you know he engaged in a little bit of fraud uh, in an effort to make money to keep his business going because his explicit aim from the start when he. first got a job at Jane Street, um, global proprietary trading firm, and then pursued crypto. To quote a journalist, it was to get filthy rich for charity's sake. And the charity that he had uh, in mind in particular was long-termism. And also that he was a long-termist before Will McCaskill (laughs) ever came around to to the view. When he, according to many biographies of him, what happened was as he was graduating from MIT, he got a degree in physics. He was trying to figure out what to do with his life. And earlier on, he had thought, maybe I'll go into academia. And then he apparently went to a talk by Will McCaskill at MIT, and then later on went to lunch with McCaskill, where McCaskill introduced uh, Bankman-Fried to this idea of earn to give. And so this is an idea that was developed specifically by effective altruists, according to which, what one should do in order to maximize the amount of good one produces in the world is rather than going and working for, say, a nonprofit, rather than doing many of the traditional things that one would do to try to improve the world, what you should do is aim to—you uh, should pursue the most lucrative job that you can find. and make as much money as possible and then take that money and then give it to charities. And actually that's a much better way to, you know, for example, you you might um, go work for a charity that if you hadn't got that job, somebody else would have gotten the job as well. Ultimately, maybe the charity has a maximum number of 10 people that they can afford to hire. Instead, if you go and work on Wall Street, for example, or perhaps even for a petrochemical company, something of the sort, then you can make so much money that perhaps you can give that money to that very charity, such that they're able to hire 20 people instead of 10. So that's a better way to do good.
4: So in the kind of EA worldview, is it conceivably justified to have a Ponzi scheme?
3: <laughs> yeah, good, good question. It's, you know, the, the community is overwhelmingly utilitarian. This is a moral theory that says that the ends justify the means. And so, within the literature, uh, within the effective altruism literature, there are statements about the importance of respecting common sense morality, of not thinking that the ends always justify the means. That you know, integrity is something that that you know matters. But nonetheless, that's probably five percent of the literature. The rest of it is mm. utilitarian. And so it's not like they explicitly say that, oh, yeah, you should go and, and uh, be involved in some kind of Ponzi scheme. It's tacit all over the place that that's sort of okay. And in fact, I mean, McCaskill was, you know, still supported uh, and the EA community in general, still supported Sam bankman frieds enterprise, even after he, you know, maybe it was probably a year ago or, or so, went on a podcast and described DeFi. Uh, which is something that he trades in, and I guess makes available on his FTX uh, platform. Uh, he mm. described it as a Ponzi scheme, mm. and he, the, the the interviewer himself was quite shocked by this particular description. Nobody in the EA community had any problem with that. Mm. So, I mean, that certainly says something about the the sort of moral character what what the the limits are uh, for individuals in this community.
4: It seemed to me, at least as a lay uh, observer of these discourses, that they were very much concerned with global poverty. Uh, They're kind of do-gooders. When did this shift happen? And is there a kind of tension within these communities, like in the sense that that it seems to have lost its way? Or am I wrong in, that, in the sense that it didn't lose its way, and this is kind of the inevitable conclusion of the kind of internal logic that they've built for themselves?
3: I don't think it's the inevitable conclusion. It seems to have been somewhere the beginning of the 2010s, when some of the early advocates of EA discovered some of the work by Nick Bostrom. Back in 2003, he published this paper. This is Nick Bostrom who founded the Future of Humanity Institute in 2005, which a lot of these individuals are affiliated with in some way. And basically, the argument was that there could be an enormous number of people in the very far future. So, you know, imagine that we colonize space, we build planet-sized computers, spread throughout our future light cone, which is the region of the universe that's in principle accessible to us. And then on these computers, run the vast computer simulations in which enormous numbers of digital people would live happy lives, <laughs> you know, net positive lives, lives that are worthwhile. And so, because the future could be so huge, from a utilitarian perspective, what matters most is not focusing on you know, current day suffering, but rather focusing on ensuring that as many of these people in the far future come to exist as possible. And it's not that current-day people don't matter. It's that on the utilitarian view, everybody counts for one. Everybody counts for the exact same. So the crucial idea is that by virtue of the fact that the human population or post-human population could be so enormous in the far future, compared to the human population today, we should therefore focus on the very far future. And so the key idea within effective altruism had to do with trying to maximize the goodness that one creates or introduces into the world. So it's about doing good better. So when they discovered these arguments from Bostrom, that there could be you know all of these people in the far future, they suddenly had this epiphany. They thought, okay, if I want to positively impact the greatest number of people possible, maybe what I should do is not focus on the 1.3 billion people in multidimensional poverty today, but the the trillions and trillions and trillions of people who could exist in the far future. So even if there's a small probability that I might possibly affect their lives, the fact that there are so many results in the expected value of focusing on them being Mm -hmm. much greater than the expected value of focusing on people who exist today. So that's where you get this sort of pivot. And absolutely, there is a tension between long-termism, which is one of the three main uh, causes within effective altruism, and the other two main causes, which are factory farming and global poverty. So, you know, global poverty, on the long-termist view, you should care about global poverty and animal welfare, really only insofar as doing so would positively affect the very far future. So,
4: basically, if I understand the logic correctly, it's, let's say, in the here and now, if I commit myself to improving the lives of the people around me, let's say I have a 50, 50 shot of improving the lives of 10 or 20 people versus I commit myself to building something new that might allow for a kind of technological advancement that would lead to a further human flourishing. And I have a 0.1% chance of succeeding, but if I were to succeed, I would improve the lives of 10 trillion people (laughs) on the whole, the latter, probabilistically, consequentially seems like the better use of my time. Do I have that right?
3: That's exactly right. Crunch the numbers. So you use this thing called expected value theory, you know, that enables you to navigate situations in which you have an array of actions that you could take, and there's uncertainty about the results. So in this case, you know, you might invest in trying to create this technology. Maybe you'll you'll probably fail. But if you succeed, the payoff is going to be huge. And so even if there's a low probability of success, if the payoff is big enough, then the expected value may still be very high.
4: So you were studying, I'm just trying to get a sense of like kind of situating you at this point, you're you're a PhD student, you're, I mean, where are you sort of in the community? You're looking at existential risk, and then you're seeing long termism going, oh boy, what what happened here? Or like, where, yeah, where, where are you kind of in the story?
3: Yeah, I mean, initially, I should say I was very much an advocate of this worldview, and Mm -hmm. uh, really took it seriously. My personal situation was a bit unusual, but is actually very relevant to how I got into the existential risk field. You know, starting two thousand nine, was basically became an independent scholar uh, for various reasons, and I I just recently became a a PhD student to, to finally get that last terminal degree. But not being associated in any official capacity with a university has its downsides, but also on the positive side, it sort of gave me the freedom or latitude to pursue strange, new interdisciplinary topics of, of, you know, scholarly inquiry. Accidental risk is a very interdisciplinary, the field that's built up around it is very interdisciplinary and doesn't really have a home even in philosophy departments. And when do you start to to
4: raise, raise questions about where you're going and where this field is going?
3: Yeah, I think it was really 2018 when I was working on a book that became part two of the forthcoming book. And the focus was the ethics of human extinction. And so for the first time, I really dove deep into the literature on the topic. So that sort of forced me to think, seriously think a bit deeper about the underlying philosophical foundation of the, the long-termist worldview. And the more I dug around, uh, the more convinced I was that the, these foundations are actually really quite weak. Part of that was that I had read some of the writings, you know books and papers that had been published on apocalyptic terrorism and apocalypticism, and realized that a lot of these movements that went on to commit atrocities, to engage in violent acts, were motivated by ideologies that, at their core, contain the very same ingredients that long-termism contains at its core. Many of the ap- apocalyptic terrorist groups in the past began as very peaceful, explicitly peaceful. You know, they had a very passive kind of mode of trying to usher in the anticipated utopian world that they were looking forward to. And then there was some situation that triggered a switch to an active mode. And hence, I became very concerned towards the end of 2019, uh, for the first time, that long-termism could potentially justify in the minds of true believers, acts that involve violence, that are aggressive, you know, perhaps even, uh, I don't think this is hyperbole to say, perhaps even genocidal. And so, yeah, that that led me to become very worried about where this...
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
4: How could it justify violence?
3: Utilitarianism, this moral theory, has had a significant influence on long-termism. And utilitarianism says that the ends justify the means. Once you have this sort of ends justifying the means mode of moral reasoning, and along with that, this view, which follows directly from it, that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with fraud, with lying, with, you know, even there's nothing intrinsically wrong about murder. All that matters are whether the consequences are, you know, maximize good, maximize value or not. And so when you pair that with this utopian vision of astronomical payoffs in the far future, then you sort of have everything you need for somebody who really buys this view and really expects there to be this utopian world uh, in the future, to engage in acts that you know, to them seem justified insofar as those acts will you know, increase the probability of realizing this technotopian future. That's why I think
4: it's so dangerous. When you start asking these questions, presumably you didn't start with, hey guys, this could justify genocide. I mean, h- how do you start asking those questions in those communities and what, is their, what are their reactions to you?
3: When I initially articulated this idea the reaction was very hostile and resulted in a lot of quite tense debate, uh, I think, within the community. I mean, frankly, a lot of people just stopped talking to me because they didn't want to believe that actually this, the ideology contains these ingredients that could be very, very dangerous so it was it was not a positive reaction.
4: <laughs> I read some of the the Bostrom papers, and you know one of the things that is in there is, you know, there's a certain sense of at least uh, rhetorically of intellectual humility where he writes about, oh, well, we can't know exactly what the right path is. So for instance, people sort of individual creative expression and freedom is important here. And so it it has me thinking, you know, in this sociologically and, and intellectually in this context, you might think, well, isn't there a chance we are wrong about something? And then therefore, (laughs) on the long-termist view, that could have really dire long-term repercussions. So you would think, at least in a community like this, that somebody like you would be very valuable because then it could get you to sort of check your priors. And, you know, obviously they're philosophy bros and they're all about that, at least rhetorically. So why weren't they more... Uh, open to that kind of debate, even if they don't come to the same
3: conclusions as you. It's a good question. They do profess to be interested in what they call crucial considerations, which is some consideration that would result in a very significant change in fundamental aspects of one's worldview. A hundred eighty degree turn, you know. So this is something they they explicitly are interested in discovering. But in practice, I think that. Part of it is that the community has become so wealthy and had made has made so many connections with billionaires and other wealthy donors that a significant pivot would have major consequences for funding. And so they sort of put themselves in this situation where they don't have much wiggle room. I think also, you know, a lot of them come from a particular background, computer science, you know, analytic philosophy, and so on. And as a result, don't have a good sense of the rest of the humanities. A lot of them haven't studied history. And so it becomes, I think, sort of easy for them to dismiss critiques that draw from, say, apocalypticism studies or, you know, history and so on. Uh, you know, well, we're, we're different and our decisions are based on really robust calculations using expected value theory and the long-termism draws a lot from e- economics. So there, there's a sense that, you know, actually the the base, you know, the foundation of their particular view really is quite robust. And, you know, so when I introduce my, my critiques, it's just like, oh, that seems just out of left field and implausible. <laughs> and so, yeah, but it's very unfortunate they didn't listen.
4: What was this like for you to be a part of this community, to then have them first of all, not, not be receptive, but second of all, just basically shun you? I mean, what was that like
3: for you? Yeah, I, I did know a lot of people in, in the community. You know, my thought was that if, you know, various colleagues of mine are this kind of dogmatic about their, their view, it's not worth having them as colleagues. So yeah, it was more than anything, it was just disappointing. I think, Mm -hmm. because I had considered effective altruism to be an intellectual home for a time. Mm -hmm. Part of that was because they had said on so many occasions that they value critical discussion and critiques of their views and so on. So to discover that wasn't the case was Mm -hmm. just very disappointing. And like I said before, I mean, it just reinforced my suspicion that there is a kind of cultishness to the community. They're a bit dogmatic about some of their quasi religious beliefs about the you know this techno utopian future among the stars with astronomical numbers of people in computer simulations
4: it is interesting how every how every article that i read about them there's uh, there's, a, there's usually a quote where one of their adherents insists that they're not a cult <laughs> 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 what uh, but but what what is it that makes them cultish
3: on the one hand it's what i was just mentioning you know, this, this sort of dogmatic adherence to, you know, certain tenets of the uh, of the worldview. Also, I would say the, the cultishness is associated with the fact that it's a very hierarchical community. And there's a lot of hero worship. You know, so Will McCaskill would be an example of this, where, you know, a lot of people look up to him and the fact that he's the highest echelon of the epistocracy demands a kind of deference from from you know underlings
4: do they explicitly use epistocracy like
3: non-ironically yeah 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 yeah. i mean i don't (laughs) think all of them use it but definitely they're this is a term that's taken seriously used seriously by people in the community so yeah i think it's also this sort of the hero worship of these individuals who are seen as especially bright especially intelligent iq is something that uh, matters a lot to many of these individuals especially within within the rationalist community which is sort of uh overlaps very significantly with effective altruism
4: I think it's also worth pointing out the demographics it's probably no no accident here I mean I think it's a movement that's white, 71% male. Might be the other way around. Those two stats, I can't remember exactly. But also, it seems like basically all of them are people at Oxford and now billionaires and Silicon Valley elites. So in this epistocracy is conveniently the very same people that are financial and intellectual elites today, which has me wondering to what extent are we maybe taking it almost like too seriously in the sense is it genuine or is it cynical like i mean are these people in a sense trying to because because their views you know in some sense are quite radical but in another sense are very mundane because they you know they have this unflinching faith in technological progress and innovation and individual liberty um, and the market so it seems like it is just exactly what financial elites want. It's, it's kind of a, like, a, in your own writing, right, as it's a kind of capitalist fever dream. So is it even a genuine intellectual project? Or is it essentially something that's being used to kind of give cover for people like Elon Musk,
3: SBF, and co to continue their ways? My guess is that a lot of the, the major, most prominent exponents of this view really do believe in it. But it's a really interesting question about whether individuals like Elon Musk do. A lot of what he does, founding companies like Neuralink, co-founding OpenAI, SpaceX, even Tesla to to some extent, make perfectly good sense when viewed through the lens of long-termism. But it could also be that he has just this personal interest, this, this dream of, well, as he has put it before to quote him, that he wants to die on Mars, just not on impact. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's just, you know, a, a lot of kids become enamored with this idea of space colonization. You know, he's s- sort of a man-child with all this money. So maybe he wants to colonize Mars, ultimately for just kind of personal reasons. He just wants to go there. And then this ideology comes along, which dovetails perfectly with what he perhaps already wanted to do anyways. And so this can provide a kind of ethical pretext for what he was going to do already, and consequently make him look even better. Like, yeah, I wanted to go to to Mars long ago, but now actually there's this ethical framework that says going to Mars is what we should be doing. Right, right. Mars is a stepping stone to the rest of the universe, and the rest of the universe is where we create astronomical amounts of value.
4: When I ask a question like that I should say I mean it strikes me that it's never one or the other like it is in a sense these people could be thoroughly genuine in their convictions but it just so happens that the material interests push them towards pursuing certain questions and ostracizing people who ask the questions they don't like because of all the money that's involved because it's just such a a break to to really challenge their own way of life. But I'm I'm interested in kind of to ask us a generous question of EA and of of long-termism, it does feel to me that, of course, all of us feel this sense of existential risk and ontological sort of insecurity. And we also struggle with how to be good people. And in the context of the existential risk that we feel, they came along and I think they filled a void. And I think a lot of people probably that, get attracted to this movement, get attracted for very probably admirable reasons. And who, who else is asking the question? So I just want to get your sense on that. But also, if not them, where, where does one go to sort of address issues of the sort that they are addressing?
3: Yeah, great questions. I do think that transhumanism and now long-termism do fill the, the, the same sort of role that religion had. In fact, I mean, speaking of Julian Huxley, you know, he was talking about the essentially the idea of transhumanism going back to the early 20th century, not just after World War II. And one of his, the, the, the books that in which he discussed the, this idea was revealingly titled Religion Without Revelation. So it was about this, you know, secular humanist worldview that could provide one with meaning, that could give one a certain kind of hope for the future that atheists or agnostics have lost because, you know, religion became during the 19th century increasingly implausible. And, you know, even uh, Bostrom himself in this very long document that he wrote with the help of many other transhumanists uh, called the Transhumanist Fact, uh, Frequently Asked Questions, he also mentions that transhumanism is essentially, you know, modern day religion rather than relying on supernatural agency to usher in this utopian world in the future, it's us, it's our responsibility, it's our ingenuity that is going to uh, enable us to, in this world, in this life, create this uh, a utopian world. So there is, a, as a result, a kind of seductiveness to it. I certainly can relate with it. The long-term vision, it's this grand view of what we could become, you know, the idea that we live in the, the hinge of history, the time of perils, you know, one of the most important moments of human history when we decide whether we go extinct or whether civilization collapses irreversibly, or we begin to colonize space, starting with Mars and so on. That's sort of up to us. So it's, this is a pivotal moment on this view that, as a result, can give one a sense, a very powerful sense of meaning. That you know astronomical value, might whether or not this is realized or foreclosed forever, might depend on you know what I do today. I mean, one thing I would say is that the the other two cause areas that effective altruists focus on, I think are good. I think there are reasons to uh, be critical of certain aspects of EA, some of the frameworks they use, the fact that. Uh, much of the, you know, the literature is built on a utilitarian ethics or draws from utilitarianism in some way. Lots of stuff to, to criticize. But the two main cause areas, you know, global poverty, animal welfare, I think are very good ones. So I don't think all of EA should be demolished. I don't think it should be raised to the ground. I think long termism is extremely dangerous, particularly radical long termism. And that I am very much worried about about but EA in general i think does have some problems but overall there is a lot within EA that is worth salvaging.
4: Yeah it strikes me that like there's philosophical critiques there's no one individual sort of quantitative metric to measure the good capital T capital G and we can talk about sort of the strange traps that a kind of vulgar utilitarianism puts you in. But I will, to their credit, say that being a good person is a difficult thing <laughs> that requires uh, intellectual and moral courage and commitment. And to the extent that EA can sort of shake you from just fulfilling the intuitive moral obligations around you, and that's that, I mean, that's a good thing, I think. But if it leads one inevitably to this, that's not a good thing. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't inevitably lead one to this. Maybe this is just a very bizarre pathological outgrowth of it. (laughs) I don't know.
3: (laughs) I don't think there's anything inevitable about accepting Mm -hmm. EA and then ending up at at long-termism. And I know that there are plenty of people in the community who have really pushed back against the the long-termist cause area. And I think that's a good thing. It's very promising. I am sympathetic with this idea that we should try to be as rigorous as possible in deciding where our finite resources go. I myself, you know, am committed to donating everything, basically everything I make over 35,000 euros a year. So when I decide to to donate, some of the EA suggestions are useful as points of reference. But I mean, beside that, I mean, EA is not just a, a philosophy, it's a movement as well. And I think there's all sorts of serious problems with the movement. Like we were saying before, it is very cultish. But you do not need to be a member of the movement to look at the philosophy and say, oh, there's something worthwhile here. So long as it doesn't lead one to long-termism, to see the loss, quote-unquote loss, of all these future people in computer simulations as some kind of massive moral tragedy that we should avoid at pretty much any cost.
4: That was Emil P. Torres. You can find their writing in many places, like Aeon, The Washington Post, Slate, and other venues. But the best place to go is their website. That's xriskology.com. You can find it in our show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We are produced by Jay Coburn, Mark apolonio and Ren Bangert. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber. Our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Kadik. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks.